Amen. Amen. Thank you, Neil. And good morning, dear friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. It's wonderful to be back in the pulpit at my home church, at uh, Holy Baptist Church. And, um, you know, someone said to me, uh, someone from this church said to me the other day um, that I was a bit like the prodigal son. Um, he hadn't seen me in the church for several months, and uh, then I suddenly turned up. Um, but uh, it's actually because of the nature of my work, unfortunately, as a teacher, as a, uh, an author, as a preacher, um, I'm often away on a Sunday. I haven't quite mastered the art of being in two places at the same time. Um, so uh, unfortunately, I'm sometimes away and not able to be here physically uh, on a Sunday. But uh, please be assured I'm very much with you in spirit. And um, I want to say as well that Holy Baptist Church is still very much my home church. It's where I feel at home and among friends. So thanks again for your welcome. And uh, I should say that prodigal son probably isn't the worst thing that I've been called by uh, someone from this church. Uh, some of you might know that um, uh, my wife's name is Vardui, and uh, we have good friends uh, from this church, Lee and Helen uh, Jerome's, and their young daughter, Beth and Grace, she's three years old. Uh, she really gets on well with Vardui. She likes Vardui a lot. Um, I'm not sure what she thinks of me. Uh, because um, she refers to Vardui as Vardui, and uh, she refers to me as Vardui's friend. <laughs> so, um, well, I've, I've probably been called worse, so I shouldn't complain. Um, but I'm really grateful uh, to have this opportunity to preach on this amazing passage, just uh, this short verse from Romans 12 as part of this exciting uh, preaching series on living sacrifices and the title that Martin has given to me is Do Not Be Conformed to the Pattern of This World. And so the question I'd like to ask all of us as we reflect on this passage is what is it that is forming you? You know, what forces are shaping your life at the moment? Have you ever thought about how, you know, how much pressure we're always under to go along with the crowd, to conform to other people's expectations of us? I'm going to begin by telling you a little story that goes back to my childhood. And now when I was a child, uh, my dad was, and, and he actually still is, a Baptist minister, so I was a preacher's kid growing up. And um, my mum and dad, they used to drag me off to these dreadful Christian festivals all the time where my dad used to get invited to, uh, to speak and to preach. You know, spring harvest and new wine. I'm sure they were great, but as a four or five-year-old, you don't really maybe appreciate these things. And um, I remember, I think it was spring harvest, they had a, a children's club and it was called Whiz Kids. I can still remember Whiz Kids at, uh, at, at spring harvest and... I remember going along for the first day, and I absolutely hated it. It was just dreadful. And, um, I, you know, the next day, I just refused to go along. And I remember my mum and dad saying, you know, they tried to reason with me. They, say, they tried to say, you know, Joshua, um, you know, you have to go to WizKids. Look at all the other little boys who are going, and they're having a great time. And uh, it's one of my first childhood memories. I can still remember it vividly uh, 30 years later. 
Um, I folded my arms defiantly like that, and I said to my mum and dad, I'm not like other little boys like that. <laughs> and, um, and so my mum and dad, you know, they tried to, to say to me that sometimes we have to, you know, we have to do things that we don't want to do, you know, just to try and fit in with what other people are doing. Now at the time, uh, my mum and dad were big fans of the singer-songwriter Chris Rear. Does anyone know about Chris Rear? You've heard of him? Yeah, Chris Rear from the northeast. He's also big um, in Hawley. Uh, so um, my mum and dad, I remember just growing up, they were big fans of Chris Rear. And every time we went on a long journey, the Chris Rear CD uh, would be played in the car. And I actually, I, I got to know all of the songs from the Auberge album um, by heart. And um, I can remember when my mum and dad said that I needed to go to WizKids, I, uh, I quoted a Chris Rear song to them. And I quoted a line, it's from um, an amazing song. If you have time when you go home, listen, just encourage you to listen to it. If you, if, if you ever get fed up of Christian worship songs and you want to, uh, to listen to something else. Uh, Chris Rear, there's a, a song that he wrote called Gone Fishing. And it contains this line. You can waste a whole lifetime trying to be what you think is expected of you, but you'll never be free. That's not from the Bible, it's from Chris Rea. But having quoted Chris Rea to my mum and dad, you know, what could they do? You know, I, I got out of having to go to WizKids uh, the following day. Now, another little story. Fast forward about 20 years to September 2009, so almost exactly uh, 10 years ago. And uh, I arrived in Dublin, uh, in Ireland, for the first time to begin my doctoral studies at Trinity College Dublin uh, with the uh, School of English Language and Literature. And uh, do you know, by the way, you know, what's the largest city in Ireland? It's, it's Dublin. Do you know Why? It's because every year the population keeps doubling in size. But, uh, okay. It doesn't really, that's just a terrible joke. Um, so, Dublin, for me, at the time, Dublin was, uh, was a new city. You know, I'd not been there before, and uh, I can still remember I, I travelled down from Belfast. And by the time I arrived at Connolly Station... Uh, in Dublin, central Dublin, it's quite late in the evening and I made my way to my new accommodation over the River Liffey uh, towards Trinity College, Dublin. And um, I remember feeling at the time, I was quite hungry. And so what do you do when you're in a strange, uh, unfamiliar city and you're feeling hungry? Well, some of you might just go to McDonald's or Burger King or, or, or whatever. Uh, if you're anything like me, and it's just a habit that I've sort of picked up unthinkingly, what I'll do is I'll wander around the city centre until I find a restaurant with a crowd in it. And I reasoned that if there was a crowd in the restaurant, that must mean that the food's really good and it's a nice place to be. And uh, anyway, I, I, to, to cut a long story short, I found a busy restaurant in central Dublin and uh, it turned out to be absolutely awful. Um, I had to wait a very long time for very substandard food, which was served to me by a very grumpy waitress. 
And uh, it wasn't a great experience, to say the least. It's the sort of restaurant where you'd go, um, you know, you'd say to the waiter, uh, excuse me, there's, um, uh, there's a fly in my soup. And the waiter would say, well, don't worry, the spider in the bread will get it for you. Uh, it's that, that sort of place. Um, so I was walking out of the restaurant at uh, Trinity College. And I was asking myself the question, why did I choose to go to that restaurant? Well, the reason was because there were lots of people in it. It was popular. And I thought, well... Is that re- is, was that really a good reason to choose that particular restaurant? Why did I decide that something was right just because I saw lots of other people doing it? Why, as a four-year-old at spring harvest, did I have the wisdom not to cave in to the pressure to conform, whereas 20 years later... As an adult, I now felt compelled, I felt forced to go along with what other people were doing. There was um, a German philosopher, he lived in the 19th century, his name was Friedrich Nietzsche. And uh, Nietzsche used to talk about uh, what he called the herd instinct, the herd instinct, like as in a herd of sheep or cattle. And um, he said that the herd instinct governs our thought processes as human beings in ways that we're not even aware of. And he says that the problem with us human beings is that we think that we're lions, but in fact we're much more like sheep. And he says that like sheep, our default tendency is just to follow the herd, to drift along, to wander aimlessly to be set off course by any trivial distraction. We think that we're free. We think that we're making our own free decisions, but in fact we're just deluding ourselves because our decisions, whether we're aware of it or not, are massively, massively determined by factors that lie far outside the sphere of our free choice. Now, we're living in a culture, aren't we? A culture that places a great premium on choice. And our culture tends to equate freedom with choice. So the more choice you have, the more brands of cereal or toothpaste you can choose from in the supermarket, the more freedom we enjoy. But what we don't take into account is how our choices are being manipulated in ways that we're probably not even aware of. I was reading recently, it it came as quite a a shock, a surprise to me, that uh, if you want to have a successful career in the advertising industry nowadays, you need a degree, not so much a degree in marketing, but you need a degree in psychology. And uh, in fact, there's a whole new field of study, and it's called neuromarketing. It sounds quite sinister, and actually in some ways it is. (coughs) Neuromarketing is all about finding <coughs> it's all about finding inventive ways pardon me <coughs> neuromarketing it's all <coughs> I beg your pardon 
It's all about trying to find inventive ways of tricking the human mind psychologically into buying stuff, mainly stuff that we don't actually need. And it all works in subtle and subconscious ways. So that the consumer, so the person buying the stuff, isn't even aware of how they're being manipulated. So let me just give you some brief examples of this. You're probably aware of it in your own experience. Have you ever walked into a clothes shop and you've heard the loud music blasting out of the, you know, the surround sound speakers? It's like in uh, Crawley when Vardui and I are going shopping. There's one shop uh, that we sometimes visit and, uh, you know, we kind of enter it with fear and trepidation because the, the music's just blasting out. And when we go in, we try to spend, you know, there's a shirt or something that we want to buy. And um, we, 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 we try to prepare to spend as little time as possible in the shop. It's like a military operation, you know, hand, hand signals to each other. And then we'll meet in this place and then we'll, we'll get out as soon as possible. It's a little bit like that. Um, but you know, do you know why the shop plays the loud music? It's because some psychologists, some neuromarketers have discovered that the loud music inhibits or blocks those parts of your brain which are responsible for critical thinking. And actually the music amplifies the activity in that part of your brain that is responsible for impulsive behavior. And so the music in the shop forces your brain to conform literally to the rhythm of the shop. And um, neuromarketing, it's a branch of uh, what's referred to um, in the, the technical language as consumer anthropology. Consumer anthropology is it's all about trying to arrange retail environments in order to maximize the chances that we, the gullible consumers, will buy something. Another example of this, um, when you go to the Tesco Superstore in Hookwood, does anyone else go to the Tesco Superstore? You know, in fact, it, it applies to any large supermarket nowadays. Where are the essential items, like the bread and the milk, located? At the back. You know, they're deliberately placed at the back to force you to spend more time in the presence of the cake and the biscuits and the cherry bakewells and the, you know, the, the custard creams and whatever. You know, you might be tempted to buy these as you're on your way to, to get the, um, the bread and the milk. You know, it's ridiculous, isn't it? In, in, in the Tesco's in, in Hookwood, you have to walk past the cherry bakewells and the chocolate cream eclairs, just to get to the bread, which is literally right at the very back of the store. And this isn't random. It's not a coincidence. Before we even set foot in that shop, there would have been a whole army of consumer anthropologists monitoring the shop floor. And they would have been working out the arrangements of every single product in minute detail. And the aim would have been to maximize the chance that you or I, the consumer, would spend money, money that we don't have, on stuff that we don't need. 
And you know, by, by the way, I was in Tesco's the other day and uh, I saw a couple who were wrapped up in a huge, great big barcode. And I said to them, oh, hello, are you an item? Okay, never mind. Uh, <laughs> okay, enough jokes. <laughs> um, so uh, something else that you might not know is that most large supermarkets nowadays, they have, these, um, they have their own in-store, on-site bakeries. And I found out, I was told actually by someone, that um, uh, it's very expensive to keep these bakeries running. In fact, the shop makes a loss on the bakeries. They can't recoup the loss from the, the cakes and the, the bread loaves that they sell. And so the supermarket runs the bakery at a loss. Why does it do this? Well, the reason is that it, it sends out the fragrance of sweet, fresh, you know, freshly baked bread, uh, you know, throughout the whole of the shop. And this stimulates the taste buds of the shoppers. And you know what happens when you're shopping in Tesco's on an empty stomach, when you feel hungry? What happens? You, you buy more stuff, don't you? So it's all deliberate. It's all calculated. And, um, you know, this again is part of the newer marketing strategy to get us to buy more stuff, uh, more than we actually need. So I return to the question that I asked at the beginning. What is it that is forming us? Well, newer marketing is forming us. It's one of those invisible forces that's forming us into the image, not of the kingdom of God, but in the image of shopping, in the image of commercial interests, of advertising. And so what does Jesus have to say about all of this? Well, Jesus says that the meaning of our lives does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. This is what Jesus says, and yet every day we're being told the exact opposite of this. Every time we, we go into Tesco, I don't, I'm giving Tesco's a hard time this morning. I could say it about any of the supermarkets. I'm not making a, a point. You know, every time we go into Tesco's or Waitrose or Lidl or Aldi, whatever, you know, or, or actually every time we log on to our Amazon.co.uk accounts, every time we glare at our smartphone screens, every time we turn on our TVs and we just watch these trashy adverts. We're constantly being encouraged to buy stuff that we don't need to impress people that we're not particularly bothered about. And it's almost like we buy the latest shiny gadgets like uh, iPads and uh, we see our souls reflected in their shiny surfaces. So this is what the culture of shopping does to us. And uh, some Christian thinkers, it's the point that I've made in my uh, latest book. I've labored the point. It's not original to me. Uh, several uh, commentators have made this point that shopping is the number one religion in the 21st century in the Western world. Shopping. The religion of shopping. And the sad reality is that in many parts of the world today, including sadly also in Hawley, this is a religion that has far more adherents, far more followers than the gospel of Christ. 
And we see how these consumer ideas have seeped in to the way that we understand the gospel, the way that we understand the saving work of Jesus Christ. So, for instance, I've been to some churches where I've seen Christians who it seems that they're trying to sell Jesus in the same way that the advertising industry tries to sell shampoo and handbags. You know, and the, and the, the, the subliminal, subtle, subconscious message of the advert is, you know, that if you wear this, you know, this perfume, then you'll become like Cheryl Cole or Kate Moss or, you know, whoever. And I can tell you on good authority that um, I tried it and it didn't work. Uh, you know, um, I still look nothing like Kate Moss. I've still got my beard and my, my bald patch and everything else. Uh, so... Today, millions of Christians worship Christ in the same way that pagan people in times past used to worship idols or graven images. So in other words, there are Christians today who worship Christ only to satisfy their own needs and their own desires. They're only concerned with God's help in terms of what he can do for them to make their lives a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more pleasant. And when they think about the gospel, the only question on their lips is, what is in it for me? What can I get out of it? And we betray our conformity as Christians to a culture of shopping when we ask questions like, well, shall I go to the you know, the Anglican or the Methodist or the, the Baptist or these other brand names of churches. It's like asking, shall I shop at Waitrose or Lidl or Tesco's? Should I buy Nike, Adidas or Reebok trainers? Uh, which church is right for me, for my family, for my kids, for my sense of comfort, for me, 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 I, I, I? And whenever we start to frame the question in this way, we know that we're not speaking from the spirit of the gospel, but from the spirit of shopping. So what is it that is shaping us? This question that we keep referring to, what is it that's shaping us? Is it the spirit of Christ? Or is it the spirit of shopping? Is it the adverts? Is it the trashy television programs that we're all addicted to? It's one of the great paradoxes of life that those things that most powerfully determine the course of our lives tend to be those things that are invisible to us. We can't see them. And often our closeness to the things that are shaping our thinking means that we can't think critically about them. We can't understand or recognize how we're being manipulated like puppets on a string. We're so immersed in the ways of the world. There's an ancient Chinese proverb which says that the fish was the last animal to discover water. The fish was the last animal to discover water. What, what's meant by this? Well, this means that the fish isn't even aware that there's something called water that exists. The water is not an object that the fish is looking at. As far as the fish is concerned, 
the fish is just part of the habitat, the natural habitat within which it is immersed. And like the fish, you know, the same is true of us. We are swimming. We are immersed, totally immersed in the attitudes and the values of the world that we fail to see just how powerfully the world is shaping us. Philosophers refer to this phenomenon. Sorry to use a jargon term. I'll try to explain it. Philosophers use the term the paradox of proximity. The paradox of proximity to explain this phenomenon. And the idea is that the closer you are to something, the more difficult it is to see it. And so the more thoroughly you're immersed in something, the more difficult it is to perceive it or even to recognize what it is. So we may not even be aware of some of the ways in which our secular, godless, and materialistic world and and the worldviews and attitudes and values associated with it have seeped into our thinking, even as Christians, as followers of Christ. And our souls have been soaked, saturated in godless secularism, in materialism, And it's so much a part of the natural habitat of our world today, isn't it? You know, even as as Christians, as followers of Christ, we feel this constant pressure to conform, to conform to the pattern of this world, to its standards, to its ethics, to its morality. And, you know, this is a serious problem for us as Christians today, but... You know, we can see from reading this passage from Romans 12 that it's by no means a new problem for followers of Christ. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, the first Christians probably didn't have to worry about avoiding the biscuit aisle in Tesco's. Uh, They probably didn't have to worry about listening to loud music in shops. But down through the ages, all Christians have felt this pressure to conform to social norms. To listen more to the noise of the world and the surrounding culture. To listen more to this than to the deep inward call of God on our lives. And the tragedy of so many Christians today is that their spirituality, their mentality... Their attitudes and their values are being shaped more by EastEnders, Big Brother, Love Island, and various other forms of tabloid trash than by the Gospel of Christ. I don't say this with the spirit of judgment. But I just want us to think about this for a moment. What is it that is forming you? What is it today that sets us apart well, the people of God, what is it that sets us apart? What makes us distinctive from the people in the world? And I recall um, my friend Lee's excellent sermon just a few weeks ago where he challenged us to think about why we're sometimes so afraid to be distinctive as the people of God. If you haven't listened to it yet, you can uh, listen to it on the playback on the website. I think it was in August, Lee, is that right? At the end of August. So, often we find that the actual differences between so-called born-again Christians and the general population are are actually quite negligible. 
And uh, I, I, was, um, I was shocked recently to discover that studies have shown that Christians in the West spend just as much time on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, they spend just as much time watching trashy television programs and, and, and playing violent video games um, as those who don't self-identify as Christians. And, you know, these studies should give us pause for thought. What is it that makes us different from the other people in the world? It's actually been demonstrated that in some cases, incidences of um, things like marital infidelity are at least as high or perhaps even higher uh, among some uh, cases of Christians than among unbelievers. So is it any wonder that our society has has been left without a transformative influence? Have we as Christians abandoned our vocation to be salt and light in the world? Remember what Jesus said. Jesus was very clear on this point, wasn't he? He said, he said to his church, he said to his disciples and to us today, he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Now think about it. Is there anything, apart from church attendance, apart from assent to a creed, is there anything else that sets Christians apart from unbelievers in the general population? Is it any wonder today that the gospel has been deprived of its saving power? You know, we can wag our finger at the world and we can complain and lament about how godless and sinful everything has become, about how standards have fallen. We can lament at the woeful state we're in as a country, uh, politically at the moment, with all the chaos that's going on that we can read about every day in the news. But is it any wonder when Christians have failed to be distinctive, when we fail to offer we fail to offer the world a positive gospel alternative. And if the church has lost its saltiness, then is it any wonder that God is allowing the church to wither and die in our nation today? Now, it's great to see great signs of life and vitality in Holy Baptist Church, and I thank God for that. But nationally, we're on our knees as a church, and we haven't been salt and light, and we're reaping what we've sown. So the question for us, the challenge for us today, is what can we do today to avoid being conformed? How can we live, not according to the world, but according to Christ and according to his gospel of salvation? Well, the first thing that we can do is to repent And by repent, I I mean the original biblical meaning of the word repent. And the word in Greek is, is, is metanoia. And metanoia refers simply to turning 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And this is what the gospel does for all of us this morning. The gospel propels us into a crossroads. 
And God places us at a junction and he gives us the choice either to keep walking down the road that leads to destruction and to death or we can repent, literally we can turn around and start walking in a new direction along a different road, along the path that leads to life and salvation. And we should understand that repentance is not simply a once in a lifetime event. It's clear from this passage from Romans 12, repentance is a daily habit. We need to offer ourselves daily as living sacrifices on the altar of God so that God can do his work of transformation through his Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds. Now you know what the problem is with living sacrifices? The problem with living sacrifices is that they tend to wriggle off the altar. And this is what we tend to do with our stubbornness, with our pride. We tend to wriggle off the altar of grace and we don't allow God to do his work of transformation in our hearts. So we all need to repent every day. You know, it doesn't matter whether we've been Christians for 60 years or 60 minutes. We need to turn to God and we need to let him do his work in our lives. We need to let him to set us on the right path every single day. And the Apostle Paul makes it clear from this passage in Romans 12. He says that the gospel presents each one of us this morning with a basic choice. And the choice is this. Today, are you going to choose to live in the truth of Christ or are you going to choose to live in the lie of trivial distractions and entertainment uh, that our world tells us? So in other words, are you going to live your life with Christ or are you going to live your life without Christ? It's a simple choice. And you see, our world today is in wholesale revolt against the gospel. We need to understand this. Our world is in revolt against the gospel. The Bible tells us clearly that the world, yes, the world is loved by God, but the world stands under the judgment of God. And this means that as Christians, we should not feel at home, we should not feel comfortable in the world. The world is not our playground. The world is our battleground. There's an important distinction to make. Now this posture might put us as Christians, as followers of Christ, it might put us in a difficult position. We might be regarded as a despised minority in the midst of a herd of angry conformists. But Jesus tells us if this is the response of the world, we should stay true to God. We should stay true to God. What does Jesus say? We should fear God more than the world. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body, says Jesus. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we need to take seriously Paul's appeal, which is addressed to all of us this morning. Do not be conformed 
to the pattern of this world. We need to avoid this temptation to conform, not only for our own sake, but also for the sake of this world which God loves. God loves so much that he gave his only son to die for it, so that all who believe would have would not perish but have eternal life. You see, this world is crying out for reality, for authenticity. The world wants to see from us, the church, the people of God, that there's a different way of living. And people are crying out for this simple, genuine, authentic way of life in this complex and bewildering world. And nowadays, people in the world, can I suggest that they're not asking us the question, what do you believe? They're asking us the question, how do you live? Now, to be frank, and certainly this is true of of actually all, 100% of my non-Christian friends, they couldn't care less about which particular doctrine I adhere to. You know, this is important, but in terms of our witness to the world, what they care about is how I live, how we live as the people of God. And they're asking us the question, is there anything different? Is there anything distinctive about us as the church, as the people of God? Do we radiate the goodness the beauty and the purity, the holiness of Christ? Do we carry the fragrance of Christ into the world? Do we shine like stars in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation? To use the words of the Apostle Paul. People are seeking this new way for living. They're looking to us, the watching world. The world is watching. They're looking to us to see spiritual realities of transformed lives. And so finally, and there's so much more that we could say on this massive topic, I need to bring things to a close. In the light of the Apostle Paul's summons to us to avoid conformity to the world's standards, we need to be clear about what it is that we truly desire. What is shaping our desire? What is it that is forming you. And in order to avoid becoming conformed to the world, we need to constantly dwell on Christ. We need to be transformed, uh, as Lee's going to explain to us next week. We need to be transformed inwardly, and we can only do this if we constantly dwell on Christ. Not just when we're in church, but all the time. We need to live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We need to put on the mind of Christ. And so my final exhortation or counsel to all of us is don't conform to the patterns of this world. Furnish your mind with good things. Furnish your mind with the things of the Spirit, with the things of God. Try to fill your minds with healthy, life-giving things. In the Northumbria community where I grew up, there's, um, there's a prayer. Uh, it's like a song uh, which is sung uh, as a prayer. And I try to sing this song inwardly 
uh, to myself every day. It's not Chris Rea. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's a Northumbrian prayer song. And it has these beautiful lines which illustrate everything that I've been trying to say. And the lines are, Fill my heart with the love of God and my mind with all good things. Beacon burning. Turn my darkness into light. Kindle the flame. Kindle the flame. Fire of Christ, burn in my heart and make me new again. I'm going to conclude with the words of Scripture from God's Word from Philippians chapter 4, which makes precisely this point even more eloquently. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put this into practice and the God of peace will be with you. The Lord bless you. Amen.